Hello and welcome to the Under the Spotlight podcast with me, Echizadoku, and Michael Dryden. This episode is the second installment of the Managers Under the Spotlight series brought to you by Breaking the Lines and Why Football. Today, I'm pleased to say we're joined by Brad Jones. Brad is a writer for Breaking the Lines and is featured in other online publications such as These Football Times, Football Chronicle and Football 365. Brad is joining us today to discuss Mark Robbins and Coventry City, their season so far, Robbins' effective system, their key personnel, Robbins' recruitment strategy, and we'll discuss how far Robbins can take the Sky Blues this season and beyond. Brad published an article with Breaking the Lines named Tactical Analysis, Mark Robbins' Promotion Chasing Coventry City, which covers a number of topics to be covering today, so please check that out. So to kick things off, uh, Brad, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm very good, thanks. I um, listened to the first episode of the series yesterday, so mm. I'm excited to be on. Yeah, very good stuff. I think, um, yeah, Brad's head's probably more screwed on than mine uh, so far uh, <laughs> for this call this evening. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Michael, how are you doing? I'm very good. Excited to have Brad on. Excited for this um, episode, which is our second one in the series. And the series of four, so the third and fourth, will be on Bruno Large and Moyes. That means it's our only foray out of the Premier League and into the EFL. And as a Southern fan, mentioned already, I will, well, I am ecstatic to do this episode. Um, but yeah, aside from that, moving from Conte to Robbins is a, is a big shift. And um, obviously, Robbins has been... Um, exceptional at Coventry City so far so it's um it's an exciting topic so yeah so just diving diving straight into the first first question obviously you've got the the article um you produce in breaking the lines tactical analysis um and a look at Robbins generally in charge of Coventry City what was your inspiration behind writing um that particular article I know you've also got one on Callum O'Hare as well are you a fan of Coventry City or just a keen observer of the championship uh, I'm just a keen observer overall, really. I'm a Hull City fan, so I've been following the league a lot more closely this season. And they're one of the best teams to watch in the league, Coventry. Um, obviously, as you said, I started off with the Callum O'Hare article and that really um, got me watching them a lot more and researching into the club because obviously I'm 22 and I think anyone around my age and below has sort of forgotten just how big Coventry was, you know, they mm. spent 30 plus consecutive years in the top flight up until the early noughties and they've got a fantastic fan base and a young squad for them to get behind and um, also just the journey they've been on since Mark Robbins took over has been pretty incredible. So that was, they were all sort of reasons in writing the analysis and sort of doing justice to the great story that they've made over the last few years. It's a bit of context for like listeners who, you know, we, we did a Conte episode as our last episode in the series. No one needs context on Conte. <laughs> such an outspoken manager, <laughs> such a successful manager. For Robbins, a bit different. You know, many people might not be aware of his career to date. So this is actually Robbins' second spell as manager at Coventry City. He managed for five months between September 2012 and February 2013 before joining Huddersfield. Um, he saved the Terriers from relegation, but failed to push the club on. And after an unsuccessful stint at Scunthorpe, he joined, rejoined Coventry in March uh, 2017. So, obviously, I don't know entirely how long you've been co- covering um, Coventry, Brad, but how much 
do you think we should credit Robbins himself for Coventry's rise from from a League Two to the Championship, which is such a short um, space of time? I think he deserves huge credit for what he's done for the club since coming in. I think um, that first spell that you touched upon, he came in uh, in back in 2012 in very similar circumstances. Really, there was they'd just been relegated to League One rather than League Two on that occasion, but. I think he came in about a month into that season and the team were really struggling, looking like they could possibly do back-to-back relegations. And he got them pushing back up into the playoffs in League One before leaving for Mm. Huddersfield in February of that season. And I think he left with some real unfinished business there and there was a real connection that he formed with the club. And then obviously since then, he's come back and the club's in an even worse state than the way he left it, uh, fans were boycotting mm-hmm. matches and the team were playing away from Coventry. They'd just been relegated to League Two and he just came in and stuck to the task he was given, focused on the positive aspects of the club that I mentioned before, like the great fan base they have and the good young squad that they had at the time and just sort of ignored the problems with the owners that other managers had been tangled up in and just said to the fans, support the club and the players and trying mm. to just reignite that relationship. And uh, from there, there was just fast improvements every season. Uh, first season, they won promotion via the playoffs from League Two and then finished eighth in League One straight after that. So big mm. improvements, won the league the year after, and they've just continued to exceed expectations in the championship, really. So I think... Um, yeah, he deserves huge credit and it's quite worrying to think where the club would be without him, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think Coventry were definitely drifting uh, into the abyss in terms of getting kicked out of the Rico, you know, the Wasps move, London Wasps, mm. who are no longer the Wasps, obviously moved to the Rico Arena as well. And I, I think for our listeners as well, I, t- I think Mark Robin is such an interesting manager because obviously he had a, such a successful uh, playing career as well. I think, obviously, being part of that United side, he actually went all the way from the top division down to the conference. And I wonder if uh, changing the lights of the changing rooms at Old Trafford compared to the conference almost kind of geared him up towards a task such as that Coventry sort of job where down at the bottom, you have to galvanise yourself and then push through. And it's, it's good to finally to see them coming up to hopefully eventually back to the Premier League because you're right, Brad, from what you said before. They were one of the best, well, they were a top flight side for such a long period of time, you know, FA Cup winners in the 80s. And they've just kind of drifted and, and haven't really returned. And hopefully, well, I'm not saying they're uh, promotion candidates at the moment or potentially to win the whole league, but hopefully we can see them in the top flight uh, not too long away from now. Yeah, and I can't go the whole podcast without mentioning the that Mark Robbins alleged, well, is seen to be the man that saved Alex Ferguson's <laughs> job because of a goal he scored. Um, I think that kept them in the FA Cup for a replay um, or just kept them in the in the competition, which was seen as um, not necessarily a turning point, but was meant to have kept Fergie's job and then obviously went on to form a dynasty at Manchester United that we all... Oh, um, wow. I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> yeah, I'd, yeah, I'll have to. Um, I'll have to at the end of the podcast whilst uh, we're going on. I'll have to dredge up the actual fact. But yeah, it's um, yeah, he's, he's, just, he's part of a massive setup and part of a massive um, a club. So maybe it's, it's good for have, to have someone like that who can really galvanise a club that's struggling like Coventry were. Um, but moving on to so this season, 
Um, well, well, last season actually Coventry finished 16th in the championship in their first season back in, in a number of years, which was seen as a, a good results. This season, when at the time of writing of your um, Breaking the Line article, uh, they were in fourth position, um, doing incredibly well. Um, since then, they've slumped down to 10th. Um, quite a lot of draws in that time. I think that's between the start of December and now, um, that period. A couple of COVID postponements, um, but no win since since actually the 6th of November. Um, but that aside, Brad, what would... What do you think the expectations were for um, Mark Robbins' Coventry City this season? I think uh, more than anything, it was just to build upon last season and secure themselves in that second tier. Like They'd um, spent a lot of last season looking over their shoulder at the bottom three. There was hovering over there for quite a long time before they went on a good run towards the end of the season. So the main objective was definitely survival and they've just um, been able to push on this season. They've kept that strong core that they formed last season and mm. they've been looking up the table a lot more so far this season and they're definitely making those steps of progression once more that will hopefully, hopefully see them get closer and closer to promotion. Maybe not this season, but over the coming years. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because like you you think and we'll come on to like outlook for Coventry in like later questions, but you know you think for Coventry if they were to like <laughs> just do a bit of a madness and get into the playoffs and get promoted, that might actually be more detrimental in the long run. Um, but it just goes to show. I mean, if it, if it, I think a tenth they're in tenth now, so if a tenth place position was to be solidified, um, you know, got a long way to go. But say they did finish in that position on mid table, again that would be, be that'd be kind of building on from last season and be a real. A real boost, I think, um, for Coventry. So moving on to um, to the system that Robbins utilises with Coventry. I mean, you noted in your article on Breaking the Lines that Coventry tends to begin matches with a slow possession, hungry approach. Um, maybe he's a bit more cautious um, before moving kind of to a higher tempo pressing, appro- uh, pressing approach um, later in matches. Do you think this is intentional tactic by Robbins or in response to kind of Coventry just maybe not starting well enough or conceding early or failing to make a breakthrough? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question, really, because to begin with, I did believe it was down to just starting slow and responding to that. But having seen how often they do step the tempo up later on in games and prove that this can be a avenue for success I think there has to be some intention to the way they play and the way that they progress more and more into games I think in recent months we've seen teams playing more cautiously against them giving Coventry more possession and conserving their energy to sort of put the pressure on Coventry to make the first risk rather than playing on the counter which they are more suited to and that's sort of Robbins is game plan as the game goes on but um, I came across quite an amazing stat when I was doing some research for this and it's that Coventry have only scored seven goals in the f- entire first half of the season and they've scored <laughs> seven from the 85th minute onwards as well six of those in uh, second half stoppage time so I think that really um, puts into perspective just how different those two halves are and it's also worth pointing out that the latest goal they have conceded all season was in the 78th minute so 
those last 10 minutes are telling for how their season's gone. There's been a lot of results this season that have sort of hinged on those last 10 minutes. And I think that's testament to how Robbins has instilled such resilience and as, like the fitness levels as well to uh, punish teams late on when they're at the most vulnerable. So it seems to be intentional, although it's a very unorthodox way of playing. Yeah, I kind of I think for our for our listeners as well, you know, not, not all of them may follow um, the championship as, as intently as you do. How would you say Coventry's sort of style lines up to the general play in the championship? So you mentioned slow, kind of trying in his question, sorry, mentioned a slower possession sort of style. Um, is that vastly different sides in the championship? Or is it more amongst the norm? Because I think uh, obviously the championship is constantly evolving as is League One and Two. But it'd be interesting to see if uh, Coventry have more of a unique style or if it just kind of fits uh, the general sort of systems that we see in that league. I think um, in the way a lot of teams set up, uh, they are quite similar. I think uh, there's there's definitely more than half of the teams in the league that currently play three at the back and they really like to stretch the pitch with those wing-backs like Coventry do. And early on in games, especially, you see Coventry utilising that width to sort of wear teams down and pass and um, play from deep with the back three just to stretch teams out vertically and uh, find space in the central areas. So I think in terms of the structure of the team, they're definitely quite unique in the way they keep the ball and they're really positive in those central areas. But in terms of um, how slow they play in the first half, I think it sort of depends on who they come up against. I think a lot of the time they are sort of thinking about the opposition and like when they've come up against the likes of Fulham, we've seen those slow starts because they're playing up against a team that is technically superior to them. Like Fulham have a lot of Premier League quality players and I think it's just mm. acknowledging that and sort of playing to their strengths, soaking up the pressure against teams like Fulham and then late running games, hitting them when they, when they don't expect it, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think you noted that actually result in the in your article um, coming down from 1-0 to beat uh Fulham four one. I think it was that was it at Craven Cottage, I believe. Uh, no, it was at Coventry's ground. It was at, it was at Coventry, but still against yeah. a team that are or have been in the top two or three of the Championship all season. Um, and we're in the Premier League not so long ago to uh, come back to win four one is is exceptional. I think you know they have thirty four percent possession in that second half, which goes to show that when they they do give they do go move away from that possession hungry approach, they really can be quite quite brutal. Um, but often that kind of change in the system mid-game is what can spark it because the opposition aren't ready for it. So it's um, it, it's very interesting. Um, also in your article, you referenced um, moving on to the actual side themselves. You, you referenced the wing-backs, which there's been talk of Ian Matson potentially going back to Chelsea. He's on loan from Chelsea, but you know at the time of your writing, and he is actually still on loan at, um, at Coventry. But you referenced Ian Matson and Fankati Dabo uh, as key components to Robbins's three four two one system and um, the wing backs. How important are these players? Do you think to to his system? I think Matson in particular, as you say, is, um, the fact that Chelsea are even considering recalling him just goes to show how 
much quality he has. And I think Dabo is very much similar in that respect. They're both very much your typical modern-day wing-back in their ability to basically operate as wingers during Coventry's attacking phases whilst having the energy to get back and defend well in one-on-one situations. And I think they both epitomise the high-octane philosophy that Robbins has put in place, especially later on in games when they're trying to push forward and often it will be overturning a deficit or sort of wearing teams out, as I've said. So um, I think, yeah, they're just so involved in all respects. The way I like to imagine it is they sort of represent the person playing a game of table football, if you can imagine it. So in Coventry's team, you've got Mm. three banks, you've got your back three, the midfield three and the front two, and all of these are reliant on the wing-backs to function, basically, because when the ball finds... When, when you find the ball in each of the three thirds of the pitch, be it the two strikers might be slightly isolated or the midfielder trying to play in transition, they've always got these two wing backs either side of them to make these options. Mm-hmm. And this is the same out of possession as well. They like to um, trigger presses when the opposition are playing in midfield and they sort of bring in the, the wing-backs in that sense. And also, defensively, they like to obviously get back. And as I say, against those better teams, they can tuck in and really defend with discipline, which is important. Yeah, it's such a, um, a type of system. is one that can, can alter. If you have versatile players, you can alter that type of system so easily. So if you bring the wing-backs back, you can form a five if you're looking to hold on to a lead. If you're looking to chase a game, you can form a three at the back and bomb them on <laughs> as wing backs. It's interesting that uh, Ian Matten's on loan from Chelsea. Fancati Dabo is formerly of Chelsea, um, and and so is Todd Kane. So that's <laughs> that's yeah, three three yeah. of their main wing backs are all from Chelsea, which is I don't I don't find it surprising. We'll go on to the um, we'll we'll move on to Robinson's um, Robinson's transfer strategy later on, or the strategy of the club. But like, it's no surprise to see like these type of wing-backs coming or formerly being from Premier League sides? Because I believe, you know, you get the impression that at youth level, that would have been a major, a kind of, for a wing-back being in Chelsea's academy or in someone at Man City's academy, as a wing-back, you really do have to have those attacking qualities. So it's it's no, um, it's absolutely no surprise. Yeah, definitely. As you say, with Todd Kane as well, he's been an, an important figure in the squad in recent weeks, coming in as that rotation player for both sides. And I think... Once the game starts to come quickly again, now that this COVID period seems to be passing, I think he will be of massive importance to keep those wing backs fit and full of energy to maintain the flow of the system. Yeah, I think as I think, I think as well with wing backs, uh, particularly with youth players, the sides are the easiest positions to break through. Whether it's players on loan or players who sign permanently, you know, it, it's often when you see youngsters making their name and really having an impact it tends to be on the sides in the in those positions hence why I'm not surprised to see players flourishing not only the championship uh, with Kov now but also when they're in league one as well mm-hmm. I think that that center part of the pitch is always a bit trickier sometimes probably strikers the hardest really to kind of mm-hmm. break in so I'm not surprised to see a lot of these fullbacks like you alluded to Dryden at bigger clubs uh, finding their way in the in the lower leagues because they clearly have the talent and I think the managers trust 
is less likely to waver in those positions compared to a centre-half, for example, or a defensive mid. Yeah, I hope Matson doesn't get recalled because it could be one of them where he'll be recalled as like a, you know, even a third choice wing back if, because you know, you know, Alonso's uh, currently in there, Chilwell is injured, but even like Hudson Adoy has, has featured there. And I believe Sal Niguez in one cup game featured there. So you, you get the impression that someone like Ian Matson would be just recalled, as you said, Bradley, because he's seen and he's viewed really highly, but probably just as cover. So for Coventry and for him, it'd actually just not be the best thing at all. Yeah, I agree. I think um, it would be a strange decision if they was to do that. But I think, uh, as we've seen with Ethan Laird, who has been recalled by Manchester United from Swansea and he's now signed for Bournemouth, I think something like that, even at a lower Premier League side, it would be good to see Matson make that step up, even though Premier League could be a little bit too soon for him. I think even a higher championship side like Laird would be perfect. Mm. So moving on, who who are the other key players do you think that are deployed in in Robins's three four two one system? And how does the mechanics of the system generally work? There's such a good balance and chemistry to this Coventry team. And you can see that there's a real trust in the way that they play and the way they press. But I think a lot of that is down to having a player like Callum O'Hare, who is the person that I originally wrote the article about on breaking the lines and is someone mm. that Coventry rely on so much, like the wing-backs, to sort of create that transition between the middle and final thirds of the pitch. And in many ways, O'Hare's, well, he's been at the club since he was in League One and I think Robbins has really focused on revolving the team around him and O'Hare is fortunate to have a team that is essentially manufactured so that teammates so like the um, two deep midfielders that they play with, usually Ben Sheaf and Gus Hamer, their job a lot of the time is just to work hard to get him the ball at all costs. And that is just testament to how good he is as a player. I think um, in terms of the mechanics of the system, as I mentioned before about the um, when they're playing out from the back, they like to play from deep, really draw the opposition's strikers out, use those wing-backs to stretch the pitch horizontally as well. A lot of this is done to mm-hmm. just give O'Hare that yard of space in between the lines as well, so that when he picks up the ball, he can just turn and explode into that space because he's so good at utilising the ball, running into final third and making a key decision. And he's been a lot of the reason for Coventry's good work this season. You see him really grow into games as they go on and excel. And um, I think Giocares and Matt Godden, the two strikers, are on eight and nine goals, something like that, uh, at this stage of the season. I think a lot of that is down to the amazing service they have both from out wide and also from O'Hare in that central area. And how about Ben Sheaf and Gus Hamer as well in the in the middle? Because uh, Ben Sheaf, he was on loan. I think he was on loan from Arsenal, and then it was made permanent. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, but I believe he is someone that can also occupy centre half. So, how kind of instrumental have, have Sheaf and Hamer's partnership been in the central areas? I think they're they're both very versatile players in the way that they can. I wouldn't say. Neither of them really excel in one particular thing, but they're both very 
well-rounded. They're both always fairly close to each other, whether it's passing passing out and making those options from the back three to transition, transition the ball up the pitch or out of possession. They're usually pressing as a unit alongside O'Hare. And as I said, their job a lot of the time is to just recycle that ball and give it to the more technically quality players. But as we've seen quite a lot in the season as well, Gus Hamer likes to get forward and help those players. And he's also great from set pieces as well. Ben Sheaf has also chipped in with his fair share of contribution further forward. So I think they just sort of bring the team together, the, the, the enablers for the more technically gifted players in the team and Mm. it's a really good blend that sort of brings it all together nicely yeah I think I mentioned on the Conte podcast about Eric Dyer being an asset not because he's anyone who's in any way viewed as like an exceptional player but someone who can play who can actually genuinely drop into like say defense not like not like the Granite Jacker version of dropping into defense where he gets sent off every other game, but like can <laughs> actually can actually drop into defense because he has played in that position. And Ben Sheaf seems that, like that sort of player, and it's so valuable because you can, you know, in that three they have at the back there, if Dabo and Matson are on their bike up the pitch, um, you know, Sheaf could genuinely drop into form four if the other other centre halves do stay, um, and that's so valuable to have whilst the rest of the team are bombing on, um, is to have that peace of mind. So. I think it's so valuable where you've got Dabo and Matson who are versatile, that can go up and down. As you said, him and Sheaf who can do different jobs. Him can, can join the attack if necessary. He Sheaf can join the defence. So it's such a such a um, an asset. Um, so what kind of on that point, do you think Robbins specifically targets players with versatile versatility? I'd say, yeah, I think there the definitely is some of that within. The system he likes to play, I think, as I mentioned before, about the disparity between how they play in the two halves. There's no doubt that he likes to target players who play with intensity, who can press cohesively, and there's that real trust in the way that they play in transition, both with and without the ball. And they like to have players that can pass incisively and take risks to capitalise on opposition mistakes, creating those overloads when they turn the ball over and have the numbers advantage. I think a lot of it is geared towards winning the possession back and countering quickly. But as I mentioned before about the way they start matches, it's also important that his players are disciplined and a lot uh, there's times where you see the likes of Sheaf, Hamer, O'Hare, all of them regrouping really quickly when they lose possession and being disciplined against better teams when they're soaking up pressure, dropping deep and just creating that numbers advantage in defensive areas also. And um, as I said before, just about acknowledging the better teams that they may come up against and just utilising their strengths by wearing those teams out, frustrating them by having bodies back. And then as the game progresses, gaps open the intensity rises from Coventry and you start to see him get more success with those quick passes and those quick transitions towards goal. Hmm. Yeah. Sticking with like incoming, so sticking with recruitment. Uh, Robbins works with head of recruitment, Chris Badlan, um, among some others, um, when bringing players in. Um, I mean, this kind of question possibly answers itself, but, you know, Matson and Ian Matson, who've talked about a lot, and uh, Clark Salter, 
are currently on loan from Chelsea. Gaio Carres, um, striker, was on loan from Brighton last season. Is now permanent. The same in regards to Sheaf from Arsenal. You've got Dabo and Kane, formerly of Chelsea. And I've seen Coventry linked kind of sparingly with Humphreys Grant, who's who's currently at Man City, probably on a loan deal. He's a centre-half. Um, so <laughs> with that in mind, is there a certain profile of player that Robbins and Coventry are targeting, uh, do you think? They seem to have a lot of first... The first team appears to have many young players either on loan from or signed from Premier League clubs and kind of plucked out of kind of, say, the under-23 system. Yeah, I think there definitely is a case of that. I think it's really impressive how they've handled young players from those top clubs. And as you touched on before about Robbins working in that high-quality environment and his playing days, I think he he's definitely taken a lot of aspects probably from Alex Ferguson in the way he treats those young players and develops them. And um, especially when you look at the club, when Robbins first came in, they only looked to be going one way. But now that couldn't be more different with the entire infrastructure and how they look to be building season on season with these young players because not only are they improving, but it's improving with a lot of the same players who continue to grow with the club. And it has become a real hotbed for young Premier League talent to not only just arrive on loan, but to want to stay and work under Robbins. And I think, as you've said, there's a handful of come back after spending time at Coventry. Callum O'Hare especially. Um, I was scrolling through Instagram earlier, actually, and a, f- a few pictures he put on with the fans. There was, You could sort of tell that there was photos that he'd put on. There was no caption or anything. And I thought that really just sort of epitomises how much he loves the club. There was one of him giving his shirt to the player. And I think he sort mm. of epitomises how... Robbins has forged that connection between the players and the fans and these young players like O'Hare. It sort of feels like he's been at Coventry forever and he's really grown into the culture around the club and the area, which is great to see. And I think the more they market themselves as that stepping stone of the top five players, as you've said, they've been after um, Humphreys Grant. And I think the more that they can draw those top players in and aim for those Premier League quality players, it can only mean that they're building a Premier League quality squad and the likelihood that they'll make it to that top flight grows. It's an interesting take you have on it in terms of uh, squad building with young players in the Premier League. It's an interesting tactic, so it's fine with the lower league clubs. Uh, You gamble either way, right? You can spend, I think... I remember when Ross McCormack went to, I think it was Villa for, <laughs> for like yeah. 13, 12 million pounds because obviously he was prolific in the championship. Um, there's been other examples more recently that I can't think of on the top of my head. Uh, Lewis Crabbe and actually Nottingham Forest when he was formerly at Bournemouth. Um, Jordan Rhodes. Jordan Rhodes, yeah. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's interesting because it works both ways. At the same time, you mentioned Premier League quality. Um, you know, there's no actual guarantee that these guys will be good enough. And it's testament to Mark Robbins to identify the right talent to actually bring him in. I mean, as a Arsenal fan, I've seen loads of guys that we, you know, fans scream and scream about in the under 23s football 
they go to League One in the Championship and they get lost. They don't really seem to play that well there and they, they kind of get lost in the system. So it's testament to the number of successes he's managed to get because, um, I mean, that gap between under-23s football and Championship, let alone League One, is vast. Very vast. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, 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 clearly him and his team there have a very good eye and long may it continue. Yeah, definitely. I think it's such an underrated way of doing your recruitment these days because obviously you see the fees for championship players going up and up and as you say the the gap between under 23s level and these leagues is massive so I think it is a great stepping stone if Mm. clubs can find that progressive club someone like Coventry maybe could get to the top flight in the next few years I know it's difficult with the because you're always sort of fighting a losing battle with the teams coming down from the Premier League. But if you can steal some players from that division and build them and make them your own, I think it's definitely can be quite a cheap option if you initially bring them on loan. And in the case of O'Hare, obviously his contract ran out at Villa and he ended up signing on a free. So it's definitely a good way of doing things if you can do it right, rather than maybe taking a punt on somebody from League One spending more money than they would have on O'Hare and the likelihood of it working is less. Yeah, Sunderland, AFC and Will Grigg uh, springs to <laughs> mind. Um, yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, Brentford have kind of led the way in that kind of in that kind of like recruitment strategy. I know they've got a BT model, but, you know, taking players from under 23s of, you know, or players that have been released from some of these massive clubs that are around them, Spurs, Chelsea, Arsenal, etc., and giving them a chance. And then, you know, if they're on loan, maybe you'll get them on a free when that loan finishes and their contract ends. Um, or you might pick them up for a nominal fee. And some of these Premier League clubs got massive networks of youth players. You think of Chelsea, they used to have like 40 players out on loan. I'm not sure what the status is with that now because I know they got criticised for it. But, you know, they've got their actual academy under 23s and down. And they've got, you know, centres of excellence, excellence around the country for even younger and there's so many players involved in the system. So for a, cl- a club like Coventry to, you know, and the chance of these players actually getting through at Chelsea is so slim, you know, based on how much they spend on the first team as well. So for a club like Coventry, it's actually picking, you can pick these players um, players off um, who have had a really good football and education at a top Premier League club. Um, and it works so well for them. And also a testament to, to Robbins because instilling like a complex tactical system with really young lads must be really difficult yeah exactly i think and we see we're seeing more and more of that as well with teams trusting those players who've worked at such a high level um there's been a lot of discussion even this transfer window with following balogun who's gone to, um obviously on loan to middlesbrough from arsenal i've seen people complaining about the fact that they're spending forty thousand a week on his loan deal but i think Obviously, that will only last till the end of the season and he's a player that could easily get double figures in that time in the Championship and get Middlesbrough promoted. And I think rather than taking a punt on a striker that would cost a few million, it's definitely a more effective way of doing it for a player that, you know, he's had experience at Arsenal working in working in such an environment, even playing games at Europa League and cup competitions as well. So. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And then if you, you do get promoted, you, you could potentially then make that purchase if you 
if you need to, um, although it might be a bit higher than what you might do, you might pay now. Um, so kind of looking at like outlook for Coventry now. So um, obviously, as I said before, they they are currently in tenth position, a couple of games in hand. But who doesn't have who doesn't have uh, well, which league doesn't have multiple teams with multiple games in hand at the minute? But um, where do you think Coventry will will finish up the season? Do you think they could maintain um, where they are now, or even replicate the form of the? The start of the season to really push on towards the playoff spots, or do you think it could be a, a slow decline down the table given they're pretty fairly new to the championship? I think they can definitely maintain where they are now. I think um, the, the sort of COVID postponements recently have definitely stopped their momentum, which obviously it has with a lot of teams, but we've seen the likes of Nottingham Forest and Middlesbrough really capitalize on that and push up the league. I think. 10th position is probably a fair reflection of the season so far. I think uh, there's definitely six better teams than them in the league and six who have more momentum as well. So I can't see them moving up much and really putting pressure on the playoffs. But at the same time, there's plenty of worse teams than them in the league. And I think, as I mentioned, with the likes of Todd Kane before, and um, there's got quite a bit of depth in other areas the likes of Jamie Allen in midfield um, Tyler Walker and Martin Waghorn I think might still be injured for them but they've they've got those rotations that could be key as the game starts to come thick and fast and I think that'll be important for them to maintain that position and progress from last season and then all the, I mean, there was rumours of, of Aston Villa circling their squad for a couple of players I saw online um, on Twitter. Um, and I've seen, well, very few rumours of any Janu- January incoming. So it makes you think, are there any funds available for, for Robbins to work with? Um, any scope in terms of wage budget? Obviously, there's already got a couple, a couple of players on loan. So you think that January incomings could be slim. So hopefully they haven't peaked too soon. Yeah, that's that's another point as well. Obviously, yeah, there's, there's a lot that could still happen this month and as teams grow their squad and Coventry's maybe stay the same, obviously we could see them overtake Coventry, which is possibly likely. I think they'll hold on to some of the key assets, which will be important going into the back end of the season. I think that'll be the main reason in sort of maintaining the position they're in now is just holding on to those key players. Yeah, I actually I actually saw an, an interview with um or like the like a kind of a quote from an interview with Joyce Apala, who's like part of the company that owns Coventry and she's seen as like the, the kind of leading force there in terms of the ownership. And there was a like a question asked to her, I think it was when Coventry were like in fourth position or around that that level, just asking like what their ambition was for the club. And she she replied saying, um, "Our vision is for Co- Coventry City to reach the Premiership and beyond." <laughs> and I was like, "What are you on about?" And like, obviously, the struggles <laughs> they've had with the Rico Arena, with their ownership, and Sisu, who own the company, uh, the company that owned the club, like all that trouble. And like, well, you know, first off, that when someone refers to the Premier League as the Premiership, they they're well out of tune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think. Um... I think I did see, I can't remember who it is from, it was definitely part of their ownership um, 
it, it was a couple of years ago. The article was from when I was doing my research. I think that they were speaking about the current infrastructure and the recruitment policy of signing these young players. And one of them said that they've got they had a ceiling with with where they could reach, and that they, they didn't expect the club to get get much higher from the championship at the stage there was that. I think this was around when either there was in League One or had just been promoted to the championship and there was basically mm. saying that there's not much further we can take from which was a interesting take, but I think they could definitely be proven wrong on that. Yeah, now she's even and now she's after European football. So uh, we might see them in the <laughs> Super League and <laughs> when it get when it gets when it gets formed in five years time. But on that point and kind of to finish off this the kind of final question we have today is you know what is the outlook for Coventry over the next five years? It's it's kind of a, a similar question for a lot of teams in the EFL, um, whether you're a League One club at the top or if you're even if you're like Fulham or um, a Bournemouth. What is the outlook for an EFL club? But for Coventry City, we just touched on. You know they they don't own their stadium. Their ownership. You know there hasn't been loads of money pumped into the into the club into the first team. They signed well. Maybe that's a reflection of the ownership. If it is, then great, because they have signed and their strategy is really good. Um, but yes, I mean, because the, the, the overachievement could stifle them. Um, if the likes of Villa and these Premier League clubs come in for their for their players. So what, what, what do you think the outlook is for, for Coventry City over the next five years? I think it will definitely be difficult for them to get promoted over that period of time. I think that's what they'll be looking to do. But in the current climate, it's difficult for anyone really who doesn't have those parachute payments. Obviously, we've seen Fulham, West Brom, Sheffield United and Bournemouth this season from the start have really had that superiority in terms of finances and the squads that they can produce because of that. And that'll always make it difficult for Coventry. But I think... As I've said about the recruitment policy of the club, it set the foundations for further success from where they are now. And I think it does. It just looks like quite a simple philosophy, really, in terms of signing players from the Premier League, making them feel at home in a developing club until they do gain enough Premier League quality to make a real challenge. And I think as much as I'd love to see them do that, I think there's a slim possibility of that maybe in the next season or two, but if they continue to build the way they are, I think they can definitely get there. Yeah, the issue, the issue as well, if you, as I kind of alluded to earlier, um, if they were to sneak back into the playoffs and get promoted, that would probably in the long term not be a good thing. You know, if they haven't got the money to spend and they wouldn't have benefited at that point by the Premier League revenue at all. So it's not as if they could go in spending 50 million <laughs> yeah, probably. It, um, it'd be such a it could be such a dangerous thing to happen. Obviously, the way that they would be able to make the most money would be by selling on these assets like Callum O'Hare, who they've got in the squad now. But that would be a massive hindrance to the progression they've made. So, yeah, I think it's a bit of a lose lose situation in that sense. Obviously, it'll be interesting to see how they can continue with this recruitment policy over the next few years. Maybe they will sell a couple of those assets on and build the squad even further, but it's going to take a lot of smart work and a lot of good work with the squad from Robbins to achieve that. Brilliant. 
Well, I think, yeah, it, it definitely is. It's not an easy one, is it, to try and predict the outlook of championship clubs? I think it, it's always very tricky because it's such a difficult, difficult league um, to get out of. You know, you see them all the time spending beyond their means just to make it to the big time. Some do make it. Uh, a lot of talk around Villa winning that playoff final where if they didn't win it, they would have been absolutely screwed and they ended up mm. doing it. But then clubs like Derby didn't go up in various seasons where they overspent and are now. Um, or they'll be, they'll be 13th without the points deduction, I think. So it just goes mm. to show how difficult and tricky that league is. Um, that's all we have time for today, though, unfortunately. So I have to give thanks to you, Brad, for joining us to discuss all things Mark Robbins and Coventry C. Uh, just to let everyone, everyone know, please check out Brad's article on the Breaking the Lines website for more details on Robbins and the Sky Blues, and also make uh, sure to follow Brad at Brad Jones Sports. Uh, coming up in our manager under the spotlight series, we'll be covering David Moyes, uh, the second coming of David Moyes, actually, indeed. And after <laughs> that, we've got Bruno Lag to finish off. Uh, so please follow Breaking the Lines on Why Football for all the upcoming content. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Cheers. Thanks, Brad. Thanks a lot, guys.